Hi, hey, hello, it's 2022, and this is episode 12 of Trail Society. I'm Corinne Malcolm. I'm Keely Henninger. And I'm Hillary Allen. And we are all in our homes for once, which is, I think, kind of bizarre for us. So go team, everyone's. And and for those of you who don't know, we're recording on a Sunday, which I don't think has ever happened either. So this is kind of this is kind of crazy. Um, Keely was just traveling back out east to see family, um, which we'll talk about here, I'm sure, in a little bit. But um, we've got some news for you. Um, that's really important for the show. The show has been doing super well due to all of you all listening to us and liking us and subscribing and sliding into our DMs. And because of that, we all really want to invest more energy into the show. And one of the things that we're doing in order to allow us to invest more energy into the show is to partner with some really, really cool um, organizations and companies over the next 12 months. And with that being said, we want you to know that the next five episodes will be done in collaboration with Strava. And Strava needs no, no introduction. They're the number one app for runners and cyclists. And while I may quit many other social apps, my relationship with Strava remains steadfast. I know I'm not, the, I'm not alone here. And you both use Strava because I've stalked you both on Strava. And so I'm wondering, um, you know, as we're sitting here, what are some of your favorite features that you've been using? I mean, I use it to stalk people. In a very healthy way, I've met some of my favorite people off of Strava. So when I was new to Portland, I didn't have anybody to run with and I would be on runs and I would say hi to like other females running and they would seem really friendly. And so I would kind of creep on Strava and I found that some of them did this as well. And I've made some really great relationships through this. And so I feel like the community of Strava is my favorite part. It like kind of holds you accountable. You get to see new routes through it. You get to see what your friends are up to. And you get to meet new people in your community um, that you can run with and adventure with and and become friends with. And so, yeah, I absolutely love Strava. It has helped me make so many friends. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that too. I also am no stranger to Strava stalking. Um, One of my favorite features is uh, the heat maps. So kind of what Keely said is like, if I do a lot of traveling and I'm not sure where to go, I can use the Strava heat maps to be like, okay, looks like this is a popular route and this is for cycling even or for running. Um, And so I can kind of plan out a route um, and then, you know, either meet people along the way who, you know, who do, who have created said heat maps. (laughs) And then I can, you know, it's, it's a really cool way to, to meet people, but also figure out where to go. And ironically, I found Strava actually through injury recovery. Like I didn't have Strava before, but then it was a really cool way for me to measure my progress. And so I actually really like the features where, you know, if you place like a top 10 or, you know, these like, or a crown or something like this, you could actually see kind of where you, where you line up. It was a, it was actually kind of a, a positive thing for me to see that I was actually improving as I was kind of getting through injury. Yeah. And we're going to get to learn more about that in two weeks, because one thing that we're doing is we're in, in this partnership where it's co it's coinciding with Strava, releasing a bunch of really co- cool short films, um, about Strava segments and about community and individuals. And Hilly is one of those stories. And that will be very, very cool. Um, one of my personal favorite features, um, I used this morning, I made a route to run with one of my friends. Um, we were starting from a different location than normal for us. And I really wanted to 
know what we are getting into ahead of time. And I'm constantly lost. So being able to create a route, which is a premium feature, um, and then access it while I'm on the run or share it with another runner so that like we both know what we're going to be doing for that day has been huge for me. And I think that's the big thing that is that these premium features now fall under the Strava subscription, which is great. Um, and you too can be a subscriber for only $5 a month, which I know here in San Francisco is less than a latte. Um, which is pretty cool. So we encourage you, if you're not yet a Strava subscriber to give it a try. Um, we really enjoy the premium features that we get to utilize, um, daily, including those heat maps and those, um, route building tools. And we'll talk more about some of this stuff later in the show, but we have some personal news on the show too. Speaking of, you know, big, exciting life things, Hilly, do you have anything that you want to, you want to share with everyone? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's so funny. Maybe, I mean, Corinne, you, you did know it's kind of a bit of foreshadowing. You mentioned, oh, it's going to be interesting to see how people are going to be like shaking down if they're staying with their sponsors, if they're moving around. I like guiltily was thinking to myself, oh, (laughs) um, but yeah, so I've actually, I'm moving on from the North face. So after seven long years, um, and some pretty formative years and some incredibly successful years, um, I'm, I'm going to be leaving and well, I have left the North face. Um, so it's bittersweet, right. Um, I'm a very loyal person and I, you know, I would, you know, have liked to stay with the North face for, you know, the entirety of my career, but I think there's also certain, you know, growth that happens when you kind of move on. Um, I think of the goldfish analogy, like outgrowing a, a little, a tank or something, but no, there, um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited. Uh, and yeah, so that's, uh, for kind of what's to come, I guess we can talk about that in news later when it's, <laughs> when, when everything's in- official, official, maybe, yes. uh, next episode, Hilly can give us a little bit more of a lowdown, but I know like Keely, you just signed a new pack contract, which is I think really exciting as well. So this is a big moving and shaking time. We've got a lot of athletes who have announced they're leaving sponsors. We've got athletes who have announced who new sponsors are going to be. I myself get to stay put for another three years, which is really exciting. Um, but that's not always the case. And this is a really important time of year for athletes. Um, and it's not talked about all that often in part because we sign NDAs with our contracts, which is like kind of, I don't know, that's, that's scary and intimidating and it doesn't help, you know, you can't help each other out. Be like, what, what are, what's your value? What are you worth? Are you getting a fair shake? Um, and I think that's an important topic. I know, um, Keely, you pulled a bunch of data, which I think is super interesting discussing kind of the pay discrepancy. Like obviously there's pay discrepancies between males and females in many, many, many fields, right? Just general pay inequality. And I'm wondering what you found in regards specifically to sports and then specifically to ultra running. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess just kind of going off your last point where you were talking about, it's not very talked about right in trail running. And I agree. It's like been this like hidden thing for so long. It's like hushed. It's like people talk about it in back hallways. Nobody talks about how much they make, what sponsors are giving them, like what they're actually worth. And so, I mean, I think people were interested in this while the sport was growing. And so I was kind of looking through some of Iron Farr's old posts Um, and actually back in 2017, they pulled some of the top trail running, um, female and male athletes in both us and Europe to try to understand like how much these people were making from their sponsors, comparing men and women, but also looking at like how much they thought the, like these participants thought they were worth. And this study like shined a lot of light on trail running in general. Um, and in a nutshell, it really just came out showing that the majority of the men 
made more than the majority of the women and that the majority of the men also thought they were worth more than the majority of the women. And I think that this is kind of the root cause of like pay discrepancy, at least in something like trail running at its core is that we don't know what we're worth. And so therefore, if a company comes to us giving us X, we're more inclined to, to accept that. And we're not going to question it and be like, I demand more, I'm worth more because we a don't know. And we also under undervaluing our own worth. Um, and so I think like, it's a really interesting time in the sport because I've been feeling like a lot of people are talking about it a little bit more openly now, especially outside of the NDA, like when you're outside of your NDA and like being more open about what they're making. And, and I think that will just elicit change in the whole sport and it will level up the, like, it will raise the bar for what a, a professional female trail runner should make. Right. Um, instead of like everyone accepting the bare minimum of what those sponsors are offering, they might start questioning it and be like, no, I, I, I deserve this. And so then these sponsors are going to have to pay us more. And yeah, it was just, it was super interesting. And so I think 2017, that article really like summarized it well at the time. And it, and I think it's, it's translated a lot to what I've been seeing. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, we've had these conversations offline amongst the three of us being like, what's, a, what's fair. Is that a fair offer? Like, do we know that that's a, that's a fair offer? Like, and, and, you know, you have to, you kind of have to help your, help each other out because you do like, you'll just say yes. And I think I got very fortunate a number of years ago. I don't think that, I think they're both too busy to actively be doing this still, but um, Kelly Newland and Julia Germain, um, who's Kelly obviously is the great connector of people. She's a phenomenal cook, runs rad, real athlete diets out of Boulder. And Julia, who is a baddie lawyer, just like so, so cool. She got into hard rock this year, which is super exciting. Um, basically they could work as our counsel. And so they were, they were um, going through all of our contracts for us. This was back in 2019. And they could say like, this is not a fair offer. They couldn't tell us what another athlete was offered, but they could look at it and say this, you know, like let's change this language or I don't like how this is worded or um, like this is suspicious or this is a really good offer. Like this is beyond what we anticipated based on what we've seen offered to other athletes in that company or in other companies. And so like that was, I feel like I got so lucky to have someone who could do that for me without like most of us can't afford agents. That's, that's what an agent would do because not, most of us don't make quite enough money to afford an agent because they wouldn't make enough money off of us. Um, but essentially they act at, they acted as a nonprofit agent in a lot of ways. And I feel so indebted to them for having helped me with that initial contract because you know, like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what was fair at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's kind of, things are changing. I think things are shifting, but, um, Hilly, have you had any experience with that kind of stuff working through contract negotiations? Yeah. In fact, I actually worked with Julia, um, cause nice. she's here, she's here in Boulder. And again, like I can't emphasize enough of how much she helped me. And, um, and this, I think was before, this was kind of in the very early stages when her and Kelly were starting the athletes coalition. Um, so I felt really fortunate to get her advice and she helped me with some of the legal, you know, cause I had no idea, but she was telling me, it's like, Hillary, you need to, you need to ask them to change this language. Cause this will protect you in this way. So it was really eye opening for me to be able to kind of read it. And she put it into layman's terms for me because I feel like, you know, you law speak, jargon. Yeah, exactly. The law jargon. And so I was very fortunate and like very grateful for Julia for what she did and for what her and Kelly have done for, you know, female athletes to come. Um, cause I think it is, it's like, I, I had no idea and I wanted to kind of get in a place where, okay, is this fair? Like, what are some next steps? And I think that was kind of one of the first steps that helped me to kind of get a fair offer and then kind of take it, take it from there in the years to come. 
And this includes just having a contract that's worded appropriately for you. I was worded as a he in a contract at one point. And I was like, I'm Julia's like, I don't know if it matters, but like, you're not a he. So maybe you want them to like refer to you appropriately. And then I know I've known athletes who run for companies who are road, who are road dominant companies and their contracts are worded with them. Like saying they have to go to like specific track meets, which makes no sense. Or um, companies that are climbing forward that they literally just copy and paste the climbing contract and send that to their trail runners, which once again, the asks, like the deliverables in that contract aren't specific to you as a trail or an ultra runner. And it's just like, you know, okay, you're signing it. It's, it's what what's available. But at the same time, like what, uh, what else is that set, set them up? Like they might be like, oh, it doesn't matter. Like we're not going to enforce that. But like you're setting yourself up to for like that to be an issue potentially down the road. So it's just like, I don't know. I'm not like maybe everyone doesn't need legal counsel, but I think that um, taking time to not just click, you know, yes and DocuSign everything is really, really important when it comes to understanding like what your value is and what your deliverables and expectations are for both you and for whatever company you might be working with. Yeah. And even to, to, you know, to, just to piggyback off of that, I think it's, it's really, it's a really good idea, whether it's like specifically looking at a contract that you have, or, you know, just like talking in confidence with someone who is familiar, um, with, well, you know, maybe hopefully sports, um, if that's exactly what you want to, you know, to discuss in like a contract and, and kind of how things work in that. But, um, you know, I've been lucky enough to know Adam Chase for, for many years and he lives here in Boulder. And so, you know, asking him just questions, you know, like off the record or, you know, just of just in some advice, like, how do I go about this? Um, he's been really helpful. Um, with me, with me too. In fact, just this, uh, fundraising event that I just had, he was advising me if I, you know, needed to have some sort of liability waiver (laughs) or not, um, things like that. It can be really useful because, you know, you start to kind of play if with community events, we mentioned that with Strava, like it's, it's awesome. We can bring people together and run on trails. We're all, you know, coaches, we want to meet up with our athletes, but if, you know, there's also something else that we have to think about when, um, we're involving more people, um, yeah. So that's, that's just another a little aside. Liability. Liability is great. Keely, do you have anything else to, to add on the, the pay discrepancy contract season front? Yeah. Well, I think like, what's interesting is that I think a lot of change in this, in this field comes from like making allies with men and like understanding what the male counterparts are making. And like, I think that's kind of what's fueled like the WLS, um, all of the women in the professional soccer league to start telling, like saying that they need more money is because I think the men kind of were starting to be more transparent with their salaries. And they were starting to look at things like viewership and stuff and seeing that it wasn't directly reflected in what they were making. And so I think they started to demand changes and like, it's also happening in the NBA, the warriors, like Draymond green is like a big advocate for the WNBA to start making more because right now, the women's like average salary for the WNBA is 75,000 where the men's is over 8 million. So like the discrepancy is just absolutely absurd, but I think it's really like you're getting like these communities to, to go behind this initiative. Right. Um, and so I think like that's what needs to happen to make these base contracts more equal is to like know what's going on in the community and have advocates and like start demanding more of these brands. But then the last thing that I was thinking about is that, there's a lot of races in Europe that didn't offer prize money for women. Right. Or like they only offered it for the top three. And this happens in a lot of other sports as well. So it's not just trail running. It's, it's across the board. It's in track and field up until like more recently, it was also in tennis, but they've actually made a lot of initiatives 
to increase the equal pay between the male and female uh, players by making all four major tennis tournaments have the exact same prize money for men and women. And so I think that's just another interesting avenue to increase the like equality within pay between men and women is to make sure that if you're competing in the same event event, and this is even more obvious for trail running, right? We're running hundred miles. We're both running it. Then the, it, the pay for the winner should be the same. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think that's very interesting because a lot of people fight that saying that like, Oh, well, women don't have to work as hard. The fields aren't as deep. Like they're not training as hard as the men and all of this stuff. And I just don't think that's necessarily the case. Like we can't be held victim for our sport being a little bit more in the infant stage than the men's sport. Um, but that doesn't take away from how hard these people are trying and how much they have to balance by, you know, working a full-time job yeah, and also and, running. And the, so the field will never be as deep if women aren't getting paid equal contracts, right? right? right. Like when you look at, you know, you pulled some data from professional cycling, well, that's a prime example. Why are there so many professional female cyclists who worked as, you know, worked in fight, like in the finance industry or our MDs or our PhDs or have professional careers as lawyers and all this stuff. And have, have only found cycling later in life. It's because they couldn't afford to be a cyclist before that. And so I think that, that, you know, like you can't expect women's fields to be as deep if, if, you know, you get paid less than 3k a year to do it. Whereas the men have livable contracts. They have, you know, they're putting, they're investing, they're putting into a retirement account, they're paying their bills. Like that's not the same in women's sport. And so I think, you know, that's something to be considered if you're, you know, a female looking for a contract, if, if that's something that's, you know, readily, readily what you're going through. Like, I, I mean, I can only toot the horn. I mean, I've, I've run for other companies obviously, but I can toot the horn of my current sponsor in that sense where it's like, I know for a fact that one, we've tried to go one-to-one -one as far as like how many men and how many women are on our team. So much so that I have brought several really, really qualified US men to our team manager to hopefully sign them for next year. And he has said no, because even though we could use another like top end US male on our, on our North American and global team, he said no, because it would skew our team off. Like we're trying to stick to one-to-one -to -one as best as possible. Um, and then on top of that, like making sure that, you know, say Ruth Croft and Tom Evans are on a pretty similar level as far as performances, obviously Tom was hurt last year, but like making sure their contracts are equivalent type of thing. And, and they've worked really hard to, to be transparent about that with our team. And so, you know, that's something to consider when you're looking at contracts, like what, you know, make allies with the men, understand <laughs> what they're making. If, the, if you're being lowballed, you should know about it. And so some of that's going to be management. Some of that's going to be your teammates or future teammates um, and trying to find that transparency where legally advisable. Yeah. I think it'd be really cool to start getting like the faith of the brands behind female trail running and ultra running, because if they, if they can take this little leap of faith and start investing in the women in the sport a little bit more than usual so that we can kind of raise that bar, then we can have more women that dedicate more time to it and like actually treat themselves right. And then what is the potential? We don't even know. We're not even close to reaching our potential as a sport because we've all been balancing like full-time jobs for so long, you know? So it's like, it takes a little bit of a leap of faith, I think by brands, because yeah, it isn't like the most popular sport. Like we don't have a ton of money coming into the sport yet, but I think taking that little leap and investing in some athletes can really just start to elevate the sport in general and bring more females into the sport and bring more competition into the sport. And so, yeah, I think it's exciting. Like, I think we're trending in the correct direction. Capitalize on the growing market. <laughs> Females in trail and ultra are growing. That field is growing. Like invest in that.
And something else to say too, is, I mean, I think other sports, maybe they have said, okay, well, they've basically justified paying women less because, oh, their viewership is down. For instance, in like, you know, men's versus women's basketball, men's versus women's soccer, um, you know, all of this stuff, well, cycling in particular, right. There's still no really high level, you know, the epitome, like the tour de France for women in cycling. So it's like, then what is the point of, I think people think of sponsors of developing females, right. But there is a point, but I think trail running is very unique in the fact that viewership is just as popular because like Keely said, we're on the same start line as the men. And in fact, some of the most interesting races that I can remember to date have been watching the women compete. Um, I mean, we talked about this like last year's Western States. So I think trail running is at a really interesting point where we can actually capitalize on that as women and saying, look, we bring just as much viewership, if not more. So that is value. Yeah. I love it. We're going to keep, we'll, we'll keep being uh, vocal, vocal about this topic. And if any of you have any insight or Intel, or I don't know, behind the scenes uh, info, because we know, we know some of you do uh, slide into our DMs, just curious to know kind of what's going on out there and, and what you're seeing and how you're feeling about this. And then I guess some other things that we want to cover before we dive into our main topic for today is that there's some news out of Oregon. Um, Keely, I believe you put this into the show notes. Can you tell our, our, um, our listeners and viewers what's going on with that Oregon story? Yeah. So in case you guys forget, um, we covered this like Oh boy, two months ago now where um, the University of Oregon had some allegations against them for their track and field program where they were requiring um, female athletes to undergo at minimum three DEXA scans per year to determine body fat percentage. Um, and that body fat percentage was then used against the athletes to determine their training plan. Um, and typically it was used to increase their training to decrease their body fat percentage. And as we all know, women with too low body fat percentage can have a lot of negative downstream effects, right. On their training, on their health, on their menstruation. Like it is not the, the way to decide how to train a female. Um, so since that article was released, um, a lot of their ex athletes came out. So there ended up being, um, I believe six total former runners coming out afterwards, citing mental health problems that were kind of caused from this, um, this kind of strategy developed by the U of O coaches. And a lot of the coaches also came out kind of denying the claims around this, um, saying that they've always prioritized the health and safety of their student athletes and all that kind of stuff. And so, <clears throat> after all of these kind of articles came out, um, they've now released a new statement, um, saying that they will no longer monitor athletes, weight or body fat percentage. And in a nutshell, the new regulations seem, seem pretty, it's a big improvement from what they were. So athletes can now choose to be DEXA scanned or tested. Um, and these results can't be, can't be like given to the coaches. So they are going to be between the student athlete, her dietitian, his or her dietitian and the relevant medical personal personnel and not the coach. Um, and then all high risk sports and high risk is some sport that might be high risk for an eating disorder. The athletes in that sport will need to be completing annual assessments, um, to determine their eating disorder risk. And then coaches are now, um, kind of instructed to be careful to not suggest or require changes in the weight or body composition of their athletes. And so this all seems pretty good on paper. Um, I like that they came out with this addendum to their current um, like protocols. But again, I think we'll have to wait and see if this is like carried out in the proper way, but I do say this is a good step in the right direction. Um, so yeah. What are you guys thoughts? Yeah. I, I mean, I also hope that it kind of like paints a picture of what's acceptable and what's unacceptable in a collegiate program. 
um, prioritizing the health of the athlete and the well-being of the athlete, obviously, I think is going to be paramount here. I was speaking to someone associated with the team, um, you know, kind of off the record offline. And um, one thing to be noted that hasn't been reported in any of these stories is that they only were DEXA scanning the female athletes. Okay. So they were not doing this to the male distance runners and the male athletes on the team. This was, this was targeted at the female athletes in particular, which is just like a further, like furthering the narrative of body shaming and that being lighter is faster. And that this is clearly like a female college athlete issue. Um, so I think that's an important thing to note here too, is that like, while we all know that eating disorders, um, and disordered eating men are also at high risk there too, like the targeted kind of almost attack on these athletes at university of Oregon was, was on the female, the, the females of that team, which is just like extra to me, it was just like rang rang as like extra devastating. Yeah, totally. Hilly, any thoughts on this? I mean, you said it quite, I mean, you said it perfectly. I mean, I just, I think, I think it's, I think it's just horrible. I mean, I did not run in college, um, but I mean, I, I played tennis. And so I think there were kind of different, um, I think it goes more than just in running. Right. Um, but of course we have, we, we focus primarily on running cause that's what we do now. But I think it kind of, this topic goes more into, into all sports at every level. Yes. It's more emphasized on females. I certainly had more of that kind of, um, social pressure, right. As opposed to a coach telling you that, I mean, I had, I had our coach, like say, if, a, if the women's tennis match lost a match, we couldn't eat dinner. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's just stuff like this. I feel like it's endemic in sport in general. So is that um, somehow going to teach you guys to win? Like, it's just, I don't know. It was a form of punishment. It was, this was a primarily on away games, obviously when he had more control, but you know, it's, a uh, yeah, I just think it's, I just think it's a part of a part of, uh, female sport in general. And it kind of goes back to what we talked about like many episodes ago. I don't even remember which, but about coaching and how we as coaches and people in general can, you know, shape the next generation of female athletes starting at a young age. And it goes with talking about this stuff and, um, yeah, not having a one size fits all certainly in the form of a DEXA scan, but also a training plan as well. Yeah. I think this allows them to use DEXA scans with, for their intended purpose, mm-hmm. which is like to monitor long-term changes in bone density, right? So like an annual DEXA scan would not be insane. Um, as which opposed to a, a yeah. punishment, a, a met, like a, a, a ruler to punish athletes with, which totally. is especially in like a sport that is high risk for eating disorder and bone stress injury. Like if you are using it to monitor their bone density to determine that risk factor, then that is great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, and we all, yeah. So it's, it's a whole thing. It's just, it's very like the whole initial story breaking, I think hit us all in the feels and brought, but brought about a lot of really good conversations, um, both on this podcast and in our communities, which I think is really, really important. And then I think our last topic before we dive into the the meat and potatoes of the show um, was that the next golden ticket race happened in, happened in Texas yesterday. Did any of you, I was like madly clicking refresh, which was insane because they only had splits at like the halfway point and the finish. <laughs> so I'm not sure why I was refreshing so angstily. Um, it's really hard. There's no, there's hardly any cell phone service out on the course. So it's really hard to get anything more out, um, from the field. But did you, did either of you, uh, check out those results? It was, it was a pretty exciting race. Yeah, it was great. Actually, a friend of mine, John, Jonathan Rea, he won. <laughs> 
He's it's actually one of coached our, uh, by our coach. <laughs> yes. So That's I was beautiful. really pleased. He had such a hard time. I think, um, he was targeting run rabbit run and he really wanted to kind of get into using that as his like Western States kind of ticket. And so, mm. um, I think he was really disappointed. He had to drop out. And so then he took some downtime and he really kind of refocused on training. So it was really cool to see him. Yeah. He's been, he's been deserving of a breakthrough for a long time. He's a Boulder guy. Um, and Adam texted me last night while he was driving back from, uh, Nordic ski nationals that were in Utah saying, John did it. He did it. So yeah, Jonathan (laughs) Rea was first, um, Tyler Fox of Tyler and Ellie Fox. Um, Shuffling for snacks is his tag, which I think is like the cutest tag ever, um, was second. And then Joe Stringbean, um, who most of you know from doing long trail stuff, um, Makani, he was third, which is like so painful because he was fourth at Havelina. So he's clearly yeah. targeting a ticket. Um, so hopefully we'll see him at Black Canyons um, in February, making another attempt. And then we've talked about uh, Marianne Hogan, because she was phenomenal in her second place to um, Courtney DeWalter at Ultra Cape Town, but she put on a show yesterday, like super dominating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She ran a super speedy time. What? Like low nines. Yeah. Like, yeah. like um, the men's field was actually really, really deep. It was, I mean, both fields were good, but the men's field was, I think pretty darn deep for, for Bandera being an early season race. Um, and then Keely, I don't know. I know Ellie a little bit through the social media world, Ellie Pell, who ended up being second, but she's an East coast athlete, right? Yep. Yeah. She's from the East coast. She recently ran a six hour, 21 minute, 50 miles. So she got some wheels, but, um, I unfortunately have never met her on the East coast, even though I'm from the East coast and I was back East last week, our paths did not cross because she was Come probably on, on her way to Texas. <laughs> um, but I actually ran with a woman in Syracuse who, um, I think is like mutually acquainted with her. So you know, maybe now I'm like a couple degrees of separation away. (laughs) Yeah. So she ran, she charged because she was in third, like 10 seconds down on Leah Yingling, um, friend of the pod, Leah Yingling. Um, she, like they were very, very close at the halfway point. And then I think Leah was up on her by like seven or eight minutes at one point. And then Ellie just dropped the hammer to take that second place over, uh, Utah's Leah Yingling, who ultimately finished third, but for not like a phenomenal women's race, like obviously Marianne Hogan, um, Canadian, uh, from Quebec ran really, really well, but it, there was an interesting little battle going on back there. Um, everyone was bloodied up. It looked pretty, it looked, it looked great. The photos are, are really awesome. Everyone's cut <laughs> up and bleeding. So, um, congratulations to our next, yeah, two men and two women who got their golden tickets and we'll see at Western States in June who are joining Keely on that famous, <laughs> famous start line. Woo-hoo. sick um i think those are the big things from us from the races obviously racing is kind of slow right now but as more races start to pick up over the coming weeks and months um don't hesitate don't forget to slide into our dms with race results because obviously we will not see all of them so if you or your friends or your friends friends are crushing it um slide into our dms on instagram or twitter or wherever you can find us um because we want to hear about particularly hear about women crushing it. So keep that in mind. Um, but we're going to be building off of our, after a very, very long introduction, obviously we're going to be building off of our last podcast episode that you all loved about setting goals and intentions for the new year. Um, we're going to talk about quantifying, quantifying training and training metrics and tools that you can use both week to week, but also year to year. 
Some of these tools are very high tech. Some of these tools are very low tech. Um, and we will all find different iterations of them beneficial and helpful um, while trying to avoid pitfalls along the way. And while going through some of my stuff in storage at my dad's house this summer, I found my first ever paper training log from like from high school. Um, when I found skiing is when I really started recording my training. And I'm wondering if either one of you have an early have an early training log or when did you start, you know, it could be a journal even. When did, do either one of you have an early, an early edition of a training log or training journal? I mean, it's not a handwritten one, ironically, because I do really like to write. I think I had some like chicken scratches of things, but it looked a little bit different when I was playing tennis in college. So, um, uh, but I think the first time I actually really started um, documenting was when I started running. Um, and so I have like a, a virtual training log, like a pretty insane spreadsheet. Corinne, have you seen it? I don't think I've seen this. Oh man, it's so nerdy. Um, but it's awesome. I can actually like scroll back and I can like search for things. It's got like, oh man, it's, it's insane. It's got, you know, I don't even know how I made it. I was like really good into spreadsheets when I was like in graduate school. So I think I use those skills because it's like, you know, it, it, it only like certain columns for skiing or biking and elevation gain. And like, there's a little personal note. So I can like go back and be like, oh, I want to run this long. And then I will go back in my train log and be like, oh, this is a perfect loop. Like <laughs> actually it's been really good though. Um, because I was documenting it before I was injured. And so it was really cool to go back and like compare training from like blocks. So this is like years of training. And so you can kind of see patterns. And, um, I think that's, it's, it's awesome. I mean, as, as a coach, if you coach an athlete for a long time, you have like maybe months and then years of training. So you can kind of notice patterns, big blocks, like maybe recommend times of breaks. Um, but yeah, you can kind of build up a year. It's really cool. I've actually really, really like my cool training log. Your spreadsheet. I had an Epic spreadsheet like that when I was on the U S biathlon team, it was pretty intense. And it, because we are, we're shooting firearms, we would record like rounds fired and time shooting and dry firing and all this kind of stuff. And like hits and misses in practice. And like, it's, it was a little bit insane. There was a lot to measure, but oftentimes I come back to those personal notes though. Like, how did I feel training mm -hmm. or was there something that happened that day? Or it's a good way to track niggles, like little, little things that aren't quite injuries and be like, Oh, I actually can pinpoint when this thing started because I wrote about it on this day in this month type of thing. So I think it can be valuable both as a coach, but also as an athlete, Keely, do you, did you ever have a training log or you come from ball sports? So yeah. What does that had, look like? I had no, no training log. Um, I think I just kind of was like, my parents remembered a lot of my training and then they would take me to practices when I had it. And otherwise I would just like add a treadmill run in or add in like some extra shooting and stuff for basketball or soccer. But yeah, I never really recorded it. It wasn't like the thing to do. Yeah. And Maybe then I guess for me at least. Yeah. And I think it's, it's more natural in some sports than others, but, and obviously if you're working with a coach, like you might use something like training peaks or final surge with your coach or personally. And then, you know, again, back to this, like kind of why, why we're on this five, five episode journey is that Strava has become that training log for a lot of people, right? Like add, adding things to really al allow you to add like personal hidden notes, you know, for you to be able to quantify all that kind of stuff. So, you know, if you haven't, it could be a paper, it could be, it could literally be, you know, like I've got a planner sitting here next to me that I keep a lot of those notes in as well. So, um, starting to chronicle some of that stuff can be a good way to, to look back on what you've done and what you've accomplished. Um, but I think interesting kind of speaking to Hilly's crazy mad scientist spreadsheet, 
is that unlike, you know, road marathon, like road or marathon, you know, like road marathon training, ultra and trail athletes seem to have their own preferences as to like what's important. And before we got on the podcast today, we were kind of spitballing about that. Like what is important? It's so hard to quantify training load. And so when it comes to tracking metrics, when we talk about making those goals bite size, maybe that means you're going to come up with some of these metric based goals for the year because they're measurable and they're concrete and you can visualize them and you can see them add up over, over the year, be it an Excel document or a Strava year end total. So what do you guys like to use both personally? Like what kind of metrics are you monitoring to determine training load? And then Maybe what are you using with your athletes? Because all three of us right now are currently coaching as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest question with trail running is like, what do we care about? And I, I go, I go back and forth to this all the time. So my default is just track everything and look at everything all the time. But yeah, to your point, Corinne, it's like you might run fifteen miles, or you might run three hours, and you might have five thousand feet of climbing. Is that the same as running just 15, 15 miles? In my opinion, no. But like, I don't think we have a picture perfect way to quantify that quite yet. And so what I like to do is I'll monitor my distance, my pace, my duration, and the elevation gain for running, for cycling, for skiing, whatever it is I'm doing. And I just have that as like a cumulative load for the week. And I try to just like look at that over time. And so Strava does a super good job at doing this for you visually. Like you can go into your training log thing. It'll show you like small circles versus big circles for like really big days in terms of duration or distance. And I think sometimes that's really good, just a good way to gut check your training. And that's paired with like your overall duration or distance for the week, because like for trail running, for instance, I have a lot of athletes being like, Oh, well, I'm only at 50 miles for this week. And I was at 65 the week before. And I'm like, okay, well, let's look at the duration, right? And the duration for the two weeks might be the same, or it might be larger for the 50 mile week, because that week you, you ran a lot more technical, super like high elevation gain rate runs. And all of a sudden, like you can't compare apples to apples. You can't say, Oh, well, this week was less stressed than the week before you have to kind of look at the bigger picture. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's really hard. Runners come in from the road scene and they're like miles, miles, miles. And then it's like, I was sharing a story with you before we got on the, on the call where one of my first coaches in the trail and ultra space, I was living in, in Vancouver and running on the North shore, very hilly, very slow terrain. You're under canopy all the time. So I'm pretty sure my watch was lying to me constantly. And he told me to go run 20 miles. And I was like, recognizing based on the training I'd been doing that I needed to understand what that actually meant. And so I said, Hey, like, do you want me to run for four hours or do you want me to run for eight hours? Because 20 miles could take me all day on the North shore trails. Like I need, I needed a way to, to quantify that. And it, I think it actually changed his perspective of how he prescribes those runs. And part of that's knowing what terrain your athlete might be on or what your train you're going to be on and understanding the purpose, I think of each run helps to elucidate that a little bit, right? Like if you understand like that, which is complicated and nuanced, and maybe that means more open communication with your coach to get to that point. But, um, that, that has been huge for me is understanding that maybe this mileage metric, it's obviously not perfect, right? You could do a 40 mile week with 15,000 feet of climbing and you could do a 40 mile week with a thousand feet of climbing. And those are considerably different for like time on feet and load for the week. Hilly, what does that look like for you? Obviously you do even, I mean, Keely and I both multi-sport, but you like multi-sport, multi-sport. Um, you spend a lot of time on the bike. So what has that looked like when it comes to looking at training volume and, and quantifying training load? Right. And so I love what both of you have said, because it's the same thing for me. I don't really, I don't, it's not apples to apples comparison, even across sports, but also from road and to trail, because 
you know, a trail, sometimes, you know, a vertical kilometer can take an hour and you're only running, you know, running two miles. Um, but then this, this is the point that I really want to emphasize. And it's something that's really shifted my version of my, my interpretation of training load. Um, I don't really run by pace. I run by feel. And this seems like, oh, like, Oh, you run by feel. What does that mean? But it's actually really important. And I've learned a lot about this over the years and it's this rate of perceived effort. Um, and so, you know, when I mentioned a vertical kilometer, right, maybe that's an hour run and two miles, maybe three at the very most, but I'm running all out. Like it is an, it is an all out effort. So that is like a rate of perceived effort of nine out of 10. That's a pretty taxing load in my opinion, even though it's like, you know, only an hour versus, you know, if I'm, going on a longer run, I might go, um, less miles and I'm constantly tempering my, my effort and seeing how I feel on that run. And, um, I really like to talk. So usually the best way for me to, to figure out my effort level is how much I can talk. <laughs> so if I'm working too hard, I probably don't want to talk to you or I'm getting a little cranky. Like, why are you asking me these questions? I don't want to answer in very, in like, I want to answer in limited words. Right. Um, versus if it's a very conversational run, this is like, you know, a longer, you know, easy or, you know, an endurance pace. If you're, if your effort kind of gets up there a lot. And this is something that I've been able to translate from not only running and trail running, like on steep technical long runs, right. The take can take all day. Um, but this is something I'm able to translate over to the bike. Um, and I've been able to use, um, you know, long endurance rides, obviously on the bike, but also workouts on the bike. And this is something that's taken me a lot of time to kind of learn. Um, cause at first when I was, um, on like the, on the bike or the bike trainer trying to do a, a workout, like my legs were hurting before my lungs were. And so now finally that's kind of caught up. Um, and I'm able to kind of now more use a, um, you know, a, a more honest barometer of kind of the effort that I'm, that I'm perceived of exerting. But I think that is something that's really important. And I think, um, you know, this can be also as relating to Strava, I've noticed if I'm, you know, if I'm looking at I've run this route so many times and I want to keep it easy, but then I'm looking, I'm like, Oh, but I'm either with a friend and, um, I want to run like a PR or like a fast time on this route. Right. And then I end up like kind of running outside of my effort for that certain, for that certain loop. Right. I think, um, there can be some sort of competition of metrics, right. And it can be really hard to just be within yourself and, um, you know, really see what I'm feeling that day. If I'm feeling a bit tired, I have to kind of like slow down the pace, even if, if that means I'm not going to get a little metal on my Strava route for that day. Um, but yeah, that's something that I really emphasize in my personal training, but to those that I coach, especially if they use other sports aside from running or they're new, they're coming over from the road to trail. Yeah. And we'll talk more about Strava segments and, uh, comparison games here in just a second, but yeah, it's been personally, like, although I don't, I primarily train based on hours and for the last couple of weeks we've been up in Washington. So I've been skiing a lot more. And so my volume stayed about the same, but, um, recently I actually came back home because I wasn't going to be able to run quite as much as I needed to building up for some races. And so, um, I, you know, quote unquote PR'd my weekly mileage for the first time in a long, long time. I hit 55 miles, which because I'm running on consistent terrain, I can kind of compare that to runs that I've been doing for the past several months, um, as far as like vert and technicality of terrain and the fact that it's not icy or snowy ever. Um, and so for me, like that was a big 
check mark. Like it wasn't necessarily, oh, I ran eight hours or did whatever. It was like, oh, okay, like I like building up past that, particularly in coming back from injury was huge to be like, oh, my body, I, I ran that much volume this week with this much gain and I'm not in pain and I could go run tomorrow if I wanted to type of thing. And so it's been like, yeah, those metrics are good check-ins. They're good check-ins on normal weeks and normal years, but and coming back from injury, it's been a big like, okay, like how am I progressing? Kind of where, where am I in this? And I'm wondering, yeah, you know, we've talked a lot about how, you know, so most of us are quantifying in hours just because it's more stable across sports disciplines and it's more stable across terrain types and terrain variability or GPS wonk, as we're all so familiar with living in pretty treed areas. Um, Keely famously runs on trails that routinely are just the GPS cannot handle it whatsoever. Um, what can we use? How can people use these metrics to monitor training or change training or, or, or look out for things, right? Like look out for fatigue or, um, overreaching in a way that's not functional. Like what, what can people do, um, by keeping a training log, be it on Strava or some other platform to understand what those metrics might, might be pointing towards. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, what I look at the most is like the slope of my training. So I'll go to my Strava screen and especially for me too, Corinne, I'm kind of coming out of like a niggle slash off season. And so I'm trying to be super cognizant of not having really steep slopes. And what I mean by that is like, I don't want to go from one, one week, my weekly mileage is 35 and the next week's 50, right? I don't want that steep slope. So I really like it. It's almost like I am trying strategically to like keep that slope really low. And so if I'm going for the week and I I'm on a Sunday and I'm like, Oh yeah, I'll come running. And then I look at my Strava and I'm like slightly up for the week from the last week. And it's been three or four weeks of building. I'm like, Nope, I don't need to make that slope super steep. Like I get to keep it where it is and I'll, I'll bike today. I'll take today off, whatever it is. And so I love being able to track it over time to make sure that a you're, you're kind of like increasing load at a very like reasonable rate as well as like, you see those like build and then down weeks. And so it's like kind of fun to look at your own training to make sure that like, you're not just building into perpetuity, right? Like you're, you're building and then you're going down a week and you're building and you're going down a week and you're giving yourself the time to reset. And it's, it's really nice to visualize that. Yeah. Realize like, Oh, I haven't taken a down week in a long time and it's very flat and you're like, Oh, that's what we call a plateau. <laughs> um, and so, right. You want to, you want to stress the body and you want to recover the body. And so you have, you have to do that by, by easing off the gas periodically. And so I think it's like, if you go and you look at your volume or your mileage or whatever you're, whatever you're accounting for the week, and it's this steady bar for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks for six weeks or 12 weeks, like, Oh, like, maybe, maybe I, I deserve, maybe I should take, maybe I more than deserve a, a rest week. And I'm all for taking those every, you know, like four or five weeks, essentially taking that step down, taking an extra rest day, cutting back on volume, like that, that's how you gain those physiological adaptations to improve, to get better, to be able to tackle the next block of training. Totally. And I think the one other, one other thing to consider is that you might be like plateauing, or you might be down for a week in your running miles. But if you go back to like the training overview that Strava gives you, 
or anything gives you where you can combine your running miles, your run, your riding miles, your skiing miles. And you look at that total duration and you look at that over the past four or five weeks, that'll give you a really good indication too, of like, what kind of load are you doing? Because yeah, you might be keeping your running miles the same, but you might be going crazy on the bike and the ski. Right. And that doesn't equate keeping the running mileage the same because the load for that whole week is way higher than it should be. So I think in general, like keeping yourself in check with the running miles is great. You can do that by checking like your weekly mileage over time, but also just remembering that all these other things we do too increases our load over the week is also yeah. something important. That sounds like some personal experience there from Keely being like, well, I'm taking a recovery week from running, but I rode my bike for 20 hours. Like, oh, maybe that's not a recovery Absolutely. Week. Yeah. Myself. And then people I've coached as well is like, oh, well, that's, that was my down week, but I biked but I biked, but it was my down week from running. And I'm like, <clears throat> if you biked 300 miles in a week, that is not a down week from running, from running, right? That's like you're not letting your body repair. Load. Exactly. And so I think we need to remember that, yeah, it might not be as much pounding as running, right? We're not getting the downhill eccentric contraction like we do in running. We're not having as much muscle damage. It's different, right? But it is still a metabolic perturbance and it is still a load that our muscles are going through. And so it still counts. <laughs> I love, I love the perturbance. Keep you like that word? Perturbance. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great one. Yeah. And the, the other thing too, is like reaching that plateau, right? I mean, it can be very, I think maybe for, for ultra runners or runners, I think in my experience too, it's like, oh, I need to, you know, keep a certain level to maintain fitness, whether that's, you know, a number of hours or, you know, at miles per week. Right. And so if it's the same every single week for six weeks, 12 weeks, it can get a little bit out of control. What I've learned and what I've worked on with my coach is how to temper the intensity with the volume. And you can't really, and that also is another effective way to kind of monitor and alter load. Um, and this is where you start to see, you know, adaptations and actually increase in fitness. And me personally, I can't have high, I can't do high intensity um, and this is, you know, what I was talking about, like a VK, right. An hour long, but very high training load, like try a high stress load on your body. Um, I can't do that and run a long or bike long hours. Um, you know, that has to come down. And I think that's an important thing to measure over time. And right. it's, a, it's a teeter totter, right? So right. you can't, so volume and intensity are on a teeter totter when it comes to training and what you, what your body can like take on. And they can't both be high at the same time. That's not how a teeter-totter works. Um, and so we've actually, I know Keely and I, um, from this is like from probably years ago at this point, have had conversations about like, okay, but how do I add volume to that mix? What does that mean in context with that? Because I think I need to add some of that. And it's like, okay, well, like, let's look at load, right? Like you can add it, but you've got to be smart as to where it's going on the teeter-totter and what's the most important thing to emphasize for whatever stage of training you're in. So as your volume goes up, naturally intensity is going to come down. That might mean that you're shifting into LT or steady state style efforts. That might mean that you're adding vert and in adding that vert, good little uphill efforts or good, you know, kind of long steady grinding uphill efforts, right? The volume's high. Intensity is technically lower because you're not doing these VO2 max all out efforts. And so you're, yeah, you're going to have a low mileage, higher intensity time of year. And then as you get closer to your races, that's going to shift, right? You're going to shift towards doing longer volume and therefore your intensity just naturally has to come down. Otherwise your teeter-totter is very broken and you might need to call someone who can help you fix that because that's, that's not a good place to be. Totally. And you're not going to adapt to the training you're putting yourself through. Like I was just on a call 
um, for the Gorge 100K, the Gorge 100K, 50K. And somebody was saying like, oh, but I feel like I need more volume. And I just wanted to reiterate that like, hey, if you're increasing intensity, if these workouts are new to you, then it's okay to focus on the workouts and keep the volume the same because these are new stimulus to you. We don't want to increase all the stimulus because then that's just going to give your body no time to adapt. So yeah, I think that's a good thing to remember. <laughs> yep. A hundred percent. Like what, what is the emphasis of this period of this week of this, of this workout? And then focusing on, on nailing that and not trying to, I don't know, not panicking about what whomever else is doing on, uh, on social media. Um, so I think that kind of segues nicely into something that Hillary's already kind of alluded to, which is, um, segments, Strava segments and, and comparison and the good, bad, and indifferent of all that, because there are, there are highlights and there are lowlights of any of, of social media in general. And while, you know, Strava isn't necessarily social media, it's it's a place of community. It's a place where we put ourselves out there and people get to acknowledge that, give us kudos, all those kinds of things. Um, and we're going to talk more about Strava segments over the next couple of weeks, because again, we're highlighting, we're going to highlight some individuals who were in films that Strava is putting out um, in just a couple of weeks, which we're really, really excited about. But Strava segments hold meaning to us personally, I think, right? Like I know there are Strava segments in each of our communities that's also viewed as prized, like here in the Bay Area, like the Ninja Loop or the Mount Tam Hill, Hill Climb are prized Strava segments. And it is a big deal if you get one of them, right? But you might also have personal Strava segments that mean a lot to you um, in your training. And I can see them from a motivation standpoint being really, really great, right? Like of periodic check-ins. Um, but I'm wondering you know, there's off, there's also another side of that. And so I'm wondering how you each utilize segments for good and where maybe listeners um, or other individuals should be cautious. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, go ahead. Whoa. <laughs> I was just going to say um, like that, as I alluded to before, um, that's kind of the first time when I started getting Stravas and I was coming back from, from an injury and um, at first I just had Adam, he had the password and I couldn't look at it because I, just, I love that. That's so funny <laughs> because I also know myself and I can get a little bit competitive and I didn't want to know because I also was like feeling just kind of mentally low and just perpetually slow. And I just like, didn't want to compare myself. I wasn't ready to do that. Um, but I remember one day, and so we have a lot of uh, segments around here, um, pretty much on every peak in Boulder. And I was out running and had him have me like do a, a workout and I did it up green mountain. And he sent me a screenshot of this, like this segment that I got the crown on. And he's like, Hill, he's like, you're ready. And so this was kind of for me to like ripping off the bandaid of being like, okay, I guess I'm, I'm stronger than I think I am. I'm maybe I am, you know, ready to like enter a race and like, maybe I am recovered. Um, and so that was a really big positive thing for me to see kind of all the work that I had been putting in. Um, and you know, that maybe I was ready for competition. Um, but of course there's a negative side to that too. Um, where if again, I'm a competitive person. And now that I had the power of my own Strava, um, access <laughs> and my password, I could see where I was placing on every run. Right. And so it's a, it's a balance of not kind of letting that get in the way or, you know, discouraged when I feel like I put down a strong effort, but then I didn't get like on the leaderboard or any, in any of these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like to use it like a similar segment. That's like maybe a similar elevation grade to a big part of like a race you're training for. And I like to use that as like a workout, maybe two or three times before the race as like a mental way to show like improvement. 
um, which is awesome. I mean, obviously it could be bad if like you have a bad day and you run slower in one of your buildups, but I think it's just a good way to like kind of prep yourself and like keep motivated to like try really hard on a route because you're going to get like that instant feedback of like, Oh, how did this compare to my previous times? Um, which I think is really, really cool. However, obviously there could be a bad lens to that as well, where like you are on an easy run and then you try to go for the crown and you just constantly do that. And you constantly keep trying to get crowns. Like there's a season where you should be purposefully trying to not get crowns. Like I had someone come up to me the other day and be like, man, I haven't got a crown in like a month. And I'm like, you're not training for anything right now. Like you shouldn't be getting crowns. That's okay. Like you should be priding yourself of not getting crowns because why would you be running right now? All of your runs trying to get crowns. Like there's no reason to be pushing yourself that hard right now. You're just building a base. And so it was just kind of funny, but yeah, I mean, in general, the crowns are so fun. Like I love I love running crowns. Obviously. Like I think there's a ton of routes here in Portland called the nasty routes. And they're all like between 10 and 15 miles with a ton of climbing. And they all have their own like segment. They're my absolute favorite. There's one from my house that like I have the crown on now. I had to take it from like some of my dear friends, but I felt like I wanted it because personally it's so close to my house that I felt like it's my segment. (laughs) It's mine. It's mine, 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 mine. That's I, I love that. And I think that, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be a segment, right? Like I'm all for a good time trial. Um, growing up or not growing up. Wow. Maybe kind of growing up. College is growing up in a lot of ways. Um, we ran a, we ran a couple standard time trials for the ski team. Um, we did a 3000 meter on the track. That's pretty standard ski team testing that you generally about twice a year. Um, but we also did a hill climb and I loved it. And there's definitely a segment on that hill climb. Now Strava wasn't so much of a thing when I was in like as a 19 year old in Bozeman, but like we did the M the M time trial every single year, generally like twice in the fall. And it was cool to kind of like, it didn't necessarily matter how you were comparing to other people. It really just mattered. Like, did I PR? Like, did I, like I put in this training, it's kind of a nice check-in and obviously you're gonna have bad days. And that's really important. Like I hate when people, um, I have athletes that do this. I do this personally where you're like, you've got one, I don't know, big key workout or segment. And you're like, you're going to attack the segment on this workout. And then you have a bad day and you're like, Oh, well, cool. Like I'm not ready for this race. And you have to remember that like one workout, be it a long run or, um, a key, you know, quote unquote key workout for a race, isn't an indication of how you're going to do on race day. Like it's just like, every single session that you've put in both hard and easy and long over, you know, the past 16 weeks, 20 weeks, that's what matters on race day. Not that one workout where, you know, like you didn't get, you didn't PR the segment. So I think it's important to like totally. be, be at a personal time trial or, or a segment on Strava, like recognizing that it's okay to have, have off days or bad days, or I don't know, just like, you don't have the PR. And I wrote this in all caps. I don't know if someone, if you guys saw that in the notes, I said, you also, you don't have to PR every single day without it being an indicator of disaster. Like not peeing, not PRing a segment on your standard, like Tuesday run or Wednesday run, like is not an indicator that you're like slow or out of shape or training's going poorly. Like you're a slightly different runner every single day. And it's so like, I think that you've got to be cautious and this is going to kind of segue into the next, next topic of, of that comparison, both to other people, but also to yourself, be it yourself from yesterday or yourself from last year. Yeah. But I I think also if you're having multiple fails, like if you're trying for the segment every day and you continually run slower and it feels way harder than it ever has. And that's consistent for like weeks on end, then I think it's a really good indicator that maybe you need to back off the gas a little bit. Totally. Well, I'd also argue that if you were trying for this, the PR on the segment every single day, like maybe you're going too hard 
nine days out of 10. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, but I think like if you're off. primed and you are like trying for these segments, right. And they're not going well and it's consistent, then I think yeah. maybe you're just a little plateaued and like need an off week or. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I totally, I totally see that. And I think that that's easier to do with the big training metrics, like tracking kind of other, other things over like this itty bitty specific thing. And I think maybe that's easier to do in targeted workouts than an easy, like a run that you ran before coffee versus after coffee or a run that you like, I don't know, your dog took a poop in the middle of the segment. Like Strava doesn't care that your dog took a poop in the middle of the segment. That's time on your segment, man. Like PD times her poops terribly, like in the middle of the Tam Hill climb, like all the time. So <laughs> it's okay. Um, but yeah, I, like you're right. If, if things are trending, there are things that you can monitor that are, if they're trending in a negative direction, days and days and days and days and days, like, yeah, like you should listen to that. And hopefully you, maybe you're looking at some other metrics that we could talk about more um, towards the end of the show that can help with that stuff. Like, I don't know, resting heart rate or heart rate variability, other factors that people can monitor outside of training load to determine kind of like readiness and recovery and all that kind of fun stuff. Does anyone else have anything fun about segments? I personally like to chase them during workouts, like yeah. particularly ones that I'm very fond of. I'm like, oh, this is downhill mile section. Heck yeah. <laughs> this is going during my tempo. It's going to be great. <laughs> Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I love it kind of doing a workout kind of on, on a favorite climb and seeing if I can, although it can be tricky if it's like an interval. And then I also have like the rest. So then rest in the segment. So I'm just like, ah, this is maybe this isn't the best, but still, it's still fun. Um, it's fun. It's like cool to like open up my Strava afterwards and then see if, if I, you know, did well. And then maybe sometimes it's a bit disappointing, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was just thinking maybe Keely, a better indicator, even of like that downward trajectory is like, say you run pretty similar routes a lot of the time, right? Like you've got your standard routes that you're running every single week. And that's a cool feature that I've kind of paid attention to in Strava is that it's, it's smart, that AI man. And it will tell you, you know, you've run this, you've run this route 27 times and it's trending up or it's trending down. And you can kind of look at that that route. And obviously there's going to be different factors on different days. Once again, I don't know, maybe your dog took six poops on the run. So it's a little bit slower than normal, but like, it's you like, that is another thing where you can kind of trend average pace of a workout or of a, of a, a run that you do regularly and kind of look for, for trends over time in that sense. Yeah. And that doesn't mean like, Oh, this was my easy day. It's trending slower. That's okay. We're allowed to have really, really easy days. Like Nobody ever takes away a first place trophy because you ran too slow. I love that point. No, <laughs> no one ever takes your first place tro trophy because they were quote unquote, like on a recovery run. Like, yep. That's not, that's not a recovery run, baby. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I got told that once by one of my coworkers, they were super into the track road running community and they were creeping on my Strava and we went and did a 5k time trial and I like beat everyone at the trial. And he was like, wow, your Strava makes you seem really slow. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Well, my, I run in Forest Park every day. So <laughs> yeah, my Strava handle, like my thing under my name, you know, where it's like runs for blah, 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 or whatnot. Mine just says self-proclaimed slowest professional runner on Strava. And I take, I, I take lots of pride in that, in that title. Um, okay. I think something that's, that's kind of coming up in, in this discussion though, about, and about segments and it goes beyond segments, right. Is that comparison game right? Like where, where, and this could be, as you mentioned, a comparison against yourself or comparison against other people. Like, and you just mentioned this too, like no one takes a trophy on an, on an easy run, right? Like what, 
how can people avoid the comparison game? Because I think that overwhelmingly, maybe there's days where it's positive because you like you're hyping yourself up and you're feeling good. But like there are a lot of days where that comparison game is hard or negative. Like what can people do to avoid like falling down, you know, a rabbit hole of despair? That seemed really dark. It's not that dark. I'm sorry. Well, one thing that's kept me me uh, just focus kind of not going down the rabbit hole because I think it can be easy to do is just to, just to focus that everyone is so individual, right? I mean, it's like life stress, so many other factors, sleep, you know, your own personal recovery, how your job is going, all of that can lead into running, right? And running is, is, is just one thing. I mean, I try to see it as like, am I really going to judge my self-worth and the success of my next race based on one hour out of the 24 in a day out of the seven days of the week of this big training block that I'm doing. And so that kind of helps me to keep in perspective. If you have, like, if I have bad, bad runs or runs that I, I'm disappointed in, um, again, as Keely mentioned, you know, it's something to look at week after week or day after day, if you feel like you're plateauing or kind of in, in a rut, right. Then maybe there's another kind of bigger step to, to, to go into, but I just try to take it as like with the, with the grain of salt or sometimes a bag of salt, if I'm, um, in a bad stress week. (laughs) Totally. And I think some people can just tolerate like different levels of load. Obviously, like the more competitive you are as a runner, like most likely you can tolerate more load than like the more novice runners, but like it kind of proves that like one way of training doesn't fit all. So like some people might be able to respond super well to more anaerobic work and some people might respond way better to more aerobic work. Right. So like you could still be running very similar race paces and just be responding to training loads very, very differently. And that's okay. Like there's going to be some people who really thrive with certain workouts and some people who other, who do with others. But like, if, if say my training pace is, you know, eight minute pace per minutes per mile and someone who's like wanting to race also wants to make their training pace that that could just be a totally different level for that person. And so it, it's not going to be advantageous to try to mimic your competitors or mimic like your goal, like people you, you know, who've run like your goal pace, right? Like your training is very unique to you. Yeah. I would, I would agree with both, both of what you just said. Like Hilly to your point of like, you're not, you're not a, a pe- like a person who runs, or I guess you're not a runner who peoples, you're a person who runs, like all the things that go on in your life are really important. And then, uh, Keely, to your point, like training looks different on everyone. Like, even if we took like, let's say the the cream of the crop at Western States at the top 10 men and women, it's doubtful that any two pe- persons, people's wow, good English tonight. We're doing great Sunday, crushing it. Um, training would look the same. And that's a really cool thing about our sport, right? Like someone's peak week might look very different than someone else's peak week. Um, and so that's really important. I've had, I've had years like that too. Like I basically ran identical Western States in 2018 and 2019, like to the minute, which is like pretty frustrating as a human being. Um, that's a story for another day, but my, my life, like the life factors for my training in 2018 were so different than my life factors for my training in 2019. I couldn't do as much volume in 2018 because of the jobs that I was working. Um, And so my peak week was significantly less than 2019, but I ran virtually identical races like that, you know, and I could say, oh, I'm more ready or I'm less ready. Like, no, I, I, I worked with what I had that year. So comparison to, to yourself, year, year in and year out, it's really like, you know, be, be cautious of that a little bit too. And then you're, yeah, like I have, I know so many humans 
who like, you know, they're like, well, Jim Walmsley does this for training or Sage Candidate does this for training or Brittany Peterson does this for training. And I'm like, okay, well, what do you need to do for training? You know, and that's going to look very, very different, be it, be it on a segment, be it on, you know, your training load. And I think that's really important. And that kind of bridges to an even bigger topic. We all just made it through the end of 2021. We're entering 2022. And, and with that came a lot of like year-end summaries. We found out what your favorite podcasts were. We found out which, which were hopefully us. Um, we found out what your favorite songs of the year were, which was a lot of Olivia Rodrigo for everyone, apparently. Um, we found out what, um, how, many, how much vert you ran, how many miles you ran, how many hours you spent exercising. And you also found that out for everyone in your social circle, more than likely. And that might've been really positive, but that might've been really negative. And that might've like sent you spiraling into this big comparison game. And so I'm wondering, you know, I hope that you can celebrate your friends and peers accomplishments or years, um, but that can be, it can be unwanted as well. And so how can people assess their personal training load at the end of the year? Like, you know, successes, accomplishments, or maybe just being like, hey, like I was, you know, this was a different year for me. And then what can people do that are listening to figure out what to focus on and what's just noise and what should be kind of blocked out of, you know, put put uh, blinders on to avoid? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like you take it on a year to year basis, right? Like if I were to look back to a couple of seasons ago, my volume was really, really high. Um, and I had very good success at races and I didn't have any injuries that season. However, if you fast forward a couple of months after that season, all of a sudden my volume is way down because I'm injured all the time. And so my success metric now is kind of like injuries and success at races in relation to volume. And so my volume might be a little bit lower now, and it might not be in contention for the highest volume out there among trail runners, as well as my previous self but my injury rate is lower and my success at races is higher. And I think like for me, that's all that really matters. And so the arbitrary goals of hitting like 2000, 3000, 4,000 miles a year, like I don't, I don't use those for my personal goals. I just kind of, I weigh my total volume for the year on my like success. I like that a lot. That's great for sitting, sitting here, having been injured for an entire year. I, that, that resonates. But I think exactly what Keely said is I, it's not as simple as a snapshot and even just a year, a year might seem like an incredibly long period of time, but it's not. And you have to look at year after year of training, just like Keely said, maybe that her year stats of that epic year was great. But then the next, like right the next year, which wasn't, it was related to the previous year, year, but it wasn't included in those year end stats. Right. So we have to have more of a perspective of just one year. And, um, you know, it also, you know, we've, we've been going through a pandemic, right. It has to do with life stresses too. So you're training, you know, it, it should, or, I mean, if it looks different than it has in years past, I think that's okay. Um, and so for, for me too, it's, it's not just, getting on the train of like, oh, I did this many miles this year, this much vertical gain this year, I have to do X number of feet or miles more next year in order to feel like I'm progressing. Right. It's, it's, it's a lot more nuanced than that. Um, and for me, I, I always have to look back multiple years to kind of look at patterns and what, what was successful, um, from a training volume, but also, you know, race success and, um, looking back at those personal notes in my training log of, you know, if I'm, if I was actually, you know, happy or, or not. (laughs) Yeah. More is not always more, I think is really, really important. 
Um, because yeah, those snapshots are, that's a highlight reel, right? And maybe like, maybe it actually wasn't a highlight. Maybe the year was really hard or, um, you know, was, wasn't what you expected. So I think it's important to, to understand that, you know, everyone's in their own place, even though we share everything all the time with everyone. Um, it's important to recognize that, you know, you, you are, you are where you are. Um, and I think that's kind of where we're going to round out this part of the show and kind of, we're going to head into our society slam, which we're really excited. Um, although the next five episodes are brought to us, um, in collaboration with Strava and we're going to be focusing on the Strava segments. We have a really exciting partnership for the year with Aura Ring and you're going to hear more and more about them. We've been testing them out for, I don't know, like six weeks now, which is kind of funny um, to be walking around with extra, extra jewelry, extra bling. Um, but we're going to be doing a series upcoming that many of you have requested um, on women's health, specifically on the menstrual cycle and uh, pregnancy and post-pregnancy. And that's going to tie in a lot to Aura Ring's work um, in helping with predictive models and quantifying um, that specifically for the female athlete. So we're really, really excited to bring you Society Slam all year long um, with Aura Ring. Keely, I think you had a really cool Society Slam that ties into this. I do. And I'm just going to provide a little context um, around Aura Ring and around my Society Slam. So for those of you who don't know what Aura Ring is, it is, um, it is a ring. They look very beautiful. So they're not clunky. They can go with dresses. I wore it to a black tie event. Um, but they also monitor your heart rate for 24 seven and they kind of provide like personalized health insights as well as sleep analysis. So they track your sleep throughout. So it'll tell you like how long you slept for the quality of the sleep based off your resting heart rate and all that kind of stuff. So they're very interesting for like tracking your data over time and looking at trends, kind of like the theme of this, this whole podcast, right. Is looking at your trend. So this is just another tool you can add to your toolbox that definitely like increases, um, like all of the variables and gives you a good insight into yourself. Yeah. And I guess before, before Keely, I'm just going to cut you off real quick before you talk about your society slam was that That's okay. um, if people are interested in kind of understanding those metrics more, um, I recorded a podcast with Jason Coop and um, one of the chief uh, with Marco, one of the kind of like, he did a big validity study for Aura Ring most recently. And we sat down and just had a really honest conversation about, you know, what does this data mean? How can people use it? Um, what did his research say? He's a big heart rate variability guy. He runs his own app um, and has brought that knowledge to Aura Ring. And so if you're interested specifically in heart rate variability and sleep analysis, um, I recommend going and listening to that Coopcast episode with myself and Marco from Heart Rate Variability um, Data. But Keely, what do you what do you have for us? Okay. So <clears throat> this question is around overtraining and something we talked about in a past episode around how basically underfueling can change your hormonal balance in your body and could for some people lead to weight gain, especially that percentage or adipose gain. And this person was wondering how, if they are someone who is recovering from an eating disorder, how can they, um, differentiate between gaining weight because they're still not eating enough or just gaining weight because they were underweight before and now they're refueling their body. And obviously there's no right around this, but I felt like it was a very thought provoking question. And so I wanted to hear your guys' thoughts. So there was a really good paper that came out, um, not that long ago, looking at a relative energy deficiency in sport and OTS. And basically the summary of that was that, um, both of those are diagnoses of, in, of exclusion, i.e. you have to rule everything else out to get to a diagnosis. And essentially what they, what they believe is that 
many people who believe they're struggling with overtraining syndrome, it's actually relative energy deficiency, um, which makes sense. You'd have to rule out an eating disorder or disordered eating and low energy availability to, um, to get a true diagnosis of overtraining um, versus most people who have, because the, the symptoms overlap immensely. So I think that that's kind of part of this question is that there's this energy this person has been in a, in a state of energy deficiency. So I wouldn't necessarily worry about OTS. Um, I kind of put that in a separate box somewhere. Um, but that weight gain question is really, really, you know, that that's, that's complex, right? Like, cause it sounds like they probably need to gain weight. And then they're like, although, you know, body comp is very, very individual, that could be a way to monitor that, right? Because as you, generally speaking, as people increase their caloric intake and their body kind of re-regulates, oftentimes their body composition will change in what we'll call a positive manner, i.e. generally they they are able to maintain more lean muscle mass um, and that kind of thing. So this person's going to have to work closely with the dietitian more than likely to, to kind of monitor um, their progress. But I wouldn't, in my, in my mind, I, if I was this person, I wouldn't, you know, it's going to be stressful to think about body weight, but I think that they are going to need to not worry about weight gain. And they're just going to kind of have to accept every single phase they're in, which is so like talking to people who have long histories of eating disorders. That's such a hard component of it. Cause you're so just like, you don't feel right in your skin. Yeah, totally. And I think like, yeah, working with your doctor is going to help you better understand like the changes in composition and how that's trending. But I also kind of recommended just like using performance and overall general well-being and feeling of like a human as your indicator for like how you're doing. Because I know that like if you are in that energy deficient state still and your body is like kind of, you know, gaining fat body fat percentage because it's still in that stress state, then you're going to have some of the other symptoms of being in energy deficiency as well. Right. So you might be highly irritable. You might see performance detriments. And so I think if you are experiencing any sort of body weight fluctuations, but you are still feeling like a very nice human, you are feeling less stressed, you're sleeping well, your, your performance is well, then I think like you can just accept your body for what it is. It is doing its best. You are performing at your best and it will, it'll, it'll settle itself out over time and you yeah. just can't rush it. And I don't, I don't know this person's menstrual status, but like, you know, if, if they're in a place where they're, where, where they are getting their period again, like that's a really, like, that'd be a good indicator of kind of being on the right trend that their hormones are stabilizing. They, I mean, obviously they could be on hormonal birth control, like Mirena or another, another low, low hormone IUD, um, which for about 20% of women causes people to lose, lose the bleeding portion of their menstruation, but they should still have normal cycling hormones. And if that's a, if that's a worry for this athlete too, um, they could get like a, a blood panel that's looking at, you know, progesterone and estrogen. And that would kind of give them a picture a little bit of kind of the, of the sex hormone health and that as an indicator for some of that stabilizing in a positive direction. And I mean, I think all of this is great and I can't add any more to obviously the scientific perspective of this, because I think it is, it's multifactorial, but I think another important thing to, to mention is that, that, that it's very stressful psychologically and like not feeling at home in your own skin and even going through kind of that, the changes in body composition, right. As your body's kind of reaching a new normal, if you've been in the state of, um, you know, energy you know, deprivation for a long time, your body might store excess fat, right. As it kind of reaches a different, as it's, as your metabolism kind of renormalizes. So I think it's really important to, you know, even talk, talk to someone, whether that's a trusted friend or, you know, your family members, your community, because I think that can, it, it, you can focus on these external factors, right. To monitor your health, 
scientifically, but there's also a mental factor that I think uh, should not be ignored. Yeah. The psychological factor there. And, and, you know, following someone, someone's journey, who's very open about this, like Amelia Boone, who we, we shout out constantly because I think her, her being, her, her being very open about her experiences, I do think is ultimately going to help people. Um, And so there are, there are, you know, mentors in a lot of ways, peer mentors or people that you can um, potentially turn to for advice or solace or comfort, um, or that might even be working with a therapist locally. Um, that stuff I think could be really, really beneficial for this, this listener, but thanks for reaching out. That's like, that's a huge, a huge question. And I, uh, like that's just a hard position to be in. Hilly, do you have a society slam this week? Are you slamming? <laughs> um, I don't have a society slam. Um, I did get to see the one and only Amelia Boone this past weekend. Um, we had that kind of a, I guess my only society slam was just that we had a pretty hard, um, time this last weekend in Boulder for the new year. Uh, we had, uh, some fires, uh, one of the, the most destructive actually fires in Colorado history. Um, some of our friends and, you know, someone that you coach Corinne, um, friends and family that have lost their home in Boulder County and Superior and Louisville. Um, and yeah, so uh, just kind of the community is, it's been incredible, the outreach and support, the donations and, and everything. I host a little fundraiser, um, uh, on Saturday, um, just where people could come and gather. And we did some laps on our local mountain Sunitas and, um, had some people come out, um, donate gear, um, donate some money. Um, we raised about $4,000. So that was really cool. And that's going directly to, um, those families affected and, um, and hopefully it'll help them. And so it was really cool to see members of the community come out, um, from all over, not like all over the front range. Um, and Amelia was there too. So that was really cool. Yeah. And I think I, I sent, I sent, um, an athlete there because I was like, Hey dude, like go, go climb, go climb a hill. You're not training for anything hilly right now, but go climb a hill with hilly goat and get a hug and, and, uh, see your community. And if you need to sit and cry on a rock, like sit and cry on a rock, like that's okay. Melties are okay. Um, but I think what we should do too, if there's some good, um, donation links that are going to stay live for a long time for those affected, um, by the fires there, because it did, it destroyed and damaged <clears throat> like a thousand, homes and businesses. And that's, that is catastrophic. That is huge. So we'll try to link that in the show notes. And then my only society slam is that I had a great conversation with an athlete this week of mine who just turned 70. His name's Warren and he is a regular listener to our show. And he's, he's like so thrilled to be learning along with all of us. And so I think of my athlete, Warren, who's a 70 year old dude who loves to run ultras in Washington state is stoked on trail society. I think we're doing something right. And so, um, I think it's really cool that we're reaching a really wide audience who I never thought would be listening in. So thanks to everyone who continues to listen and continues to slide into our DM. I hope that you're as excited about 2022 as we all are. Um, and we can't wait to continue to share these Strava segment stories over the next month and a half. So stay, stay with us, slide into our DMS. We'll talk to you all soon. 